Um, I hope you'll agree that it's been a, a fantastic term. Uh, we've had some uh, great speakers with some um, inspiring input on some very challenging topics. Uh, the series has been called uh, The Tough Sayings, been looking at the tough sayings of Jesus. Uh, and if you've missed any of those, you can catch up on all of them online. Um, uh, do see me at the end for that address, or it's always in the email that we send out weekly uh, or every other week ahead of these sessions. So if you're not on my email list, do uh, drop me a message or um, see me at the end to make sure I've got your email. I'll add you to the distribution list as we don't want you to miss a thing. But we're coming into land today and uh, very excitingly, uh, our speaker today is John Ash. Um, John, uh, I first got to know John on Bible school uh, a few years ago where we'd occasionally be in the same buzz group together, uh, as it's called, which is partly what's inspired our small group times together at the end of each um, piece of input at Burning Man sessions where we like to buzz. And I was always um, struck by John's uh, good humor and his clarity of thought, I'm sure both of which will be on display today, along with a new beard, which I also find uh, jolly impressive, John. So um, it's thrilling to have you with us. Uh, John is curate here at St. Michael's, uh, where he's been for the last couple of years. He's married to Katie, so uh, would you give a very warm welcome to the Reverend John Ash. Thanks, Pat. I've seen your stubble at various stages of growth, and uh, I reckon there's potential there, so uh, let it go. Um, we're in Luke chapter 6, if you'd like to turn there. There are pew bibles either behind you or just in front of you. And um, Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 17, looking at this topic, this issue of popularity, or as we'll see, unpopularity. So I'll read um, Luke six, seventeen to 26. Jesus went down with them, that's his apostles, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch Jesus because power was coming out from him and healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Shall we pray to begin? Heavenly Father, it's early, but we can't imagine a better way to start the day than with you addressing us in person. And these words are punchy, they're clear, they're difficult. 
And so we pray for your spirit's ministry amongst us. Give me a clarity of tongue and give the rest of us softness of heart. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Blessing. Blessing. Uh, definition of the word blessing. God's favor and protection. Um, secondly, a beneficial thing for which one is very grateful. That's the dictionary definition of blessing. Imagine James, he's trudging to work on a dark winter morning, lamenting his singleness. He's lonely. He'd love to be married. Oh, for that blessing, he thinks. Lord, please bless me, he mutters under his breath. Tom is writing the family Christmas newsletter to stick in the Christmas cards on the weekend, and the cursor is blinking at him. What will I write? 2015 has been a blessed year for us. We're all healthy, and I was able to retire early in March. He smiles. Zach senses that now is not the time to invite his office to the controversial carol service, just when the blessing of promotion might well be on the cards. He thinks judiciously, I'll let this opportunity pass. There's always next year. So this morning, we're looking at the final topic in this term's Tough Sayings of Jesus series, and it's the topic of popularity or or unpopularity. And my text is the whole of the passage that I read, with particular focus on verses 22 and 23 and verse 26, since those are the ones that pertain to popularity in particular. But here, Jesus turns, as it were, to the dictionary definition of blessing, And he gets his eraser out and scrubs out the standard definition. And he gets his permanent marker out and rewrites a kingdom definition of blessing, which is hugely countercultural. And what we're going to do is walk through the passage uh, slowly on three headings, and then towards the end we'll sort of zero in on this issue of popularity. First heading, if you're a note taker, Jesus' kingdom now but not yet. Jesus' kingdom now but not yet. Jesus went down with the apostles, verse 17, he's just chosen them after an all-nighter of prayer, and he stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who'd come to hear him, to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. So having chosen his apostles, Jesus descends the mountain to find a huge crowd awaiting him. And uh, it's a sign that the early Jesus intrigue has become something of a, a Jesus movement. And they'd come for two purposes, firstly to be healed, and secondly to hear and benefit from his teaching. And they just loved him. They loved his teaching, the way when he opened his mouth and spoke, he spoke not just with authority, but with wisdom. He made sense of their world. There were many, many penny-dropping moments, I'm sure, his teaching. And then also his healing. One of Luke's portrayals of the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, his gospel is one of the man of power who's filled by the Spirit. And you'll see that here. The Spirit is filling him, and power, we're told, is coming out from him. And single-handedly, he's negating the need for an NHS in the local area and reducing GP waiting times dramatically. And it's amazing things that he's doing. 
He's healing every aspect of the person. Did you notice that? The physical body, where there's an ailment or an illness, and also the soul, where there's a demon possession, physical and spiritual. No wonder, verse 19, all the people were trying to touch him. Give me some of that, they were saying. I hate it when people ruin a film for me. Um, Oh, by the way, the ending is fantastic. Let me tell you what happens. Spoiler alert. Please just don't don't go there. But uh, Jesus here is giving us a spoiler for the end of time in verses 17 to 19. And he should really, strictly speaking, have issued a spoiler alert for those who don't want to know the end. But we'll know that since very close to the beginning of our world, God has cursed our world. Adam and Eve as representatives of the human race, uh, as they disbelieved, disobeyed, hid from the God of the universe, they invited all sorts of maladies, illness, old age, Alzheimer's, MS, cancer, the reality of a stubbed toe, depression. They invited pain, death, and suffering into our world. And here in our passage, the first few verses, we meet a man, a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is reversing that curse temporarily. As people touch him, the Alzheimer's sufferers begin to recognize their families. And the Parkinson's sufferers begin to stop shaking. And the dark cloud of depression begins to lift. It's an amazing fast-forward button that Jesus has pressed to demonstrate what his kingdom, capital K, is going to be like and feel like. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a little sneak peek of the end of time. It's a spiritual spoiler. And given that, given the beauty and the wonder of verses 17 to 19, don't verses 20 to 26 come as a confusing addition. I mean, having temporarily reversed the curse on the human race and made everything rainbows and laughter, Jesus then goes on to talk about things as blessings which are distinctly dubious in my book. Distinctly dubious. He says, you know, I know I've just healed you, but listen to this. Blessed are you who are poor, who hunger, who, are, who weep, who are hated. Really? I was imagining myself in the shoes of those there, and I probably would have gently wanted to take Jesus aside and point out he'd made an error. Don't you mean, Lord Jesus, that those who are blessed are those you've just fixed and healed and exercised? Isn't that what you mean? Maybe, Lord Jesus, it's because you spent all night last night praying. You've just lost perspective. You said the wrong line. But verses 20 to 26 come as something of a surprise. But Jesus does know what he's doing, and what he's doing is this. Having just given people an experiential taste of his kingdom in the future, it's as if he asks those people, did you like that? Did you enjoy that? Do you want more of that? Do you want more of that kind of blessing? And presumably the answer from them comes back, yes. 
Give me more of that. I love being healthy for the first time. I love it when the curse is lifted. And it's as if Jesus replies, well, then you won't mind waiting for that kind of blessing. You won't be worried about being poor, hungry, sad, and hated until you receive that kind of blessing. And Jesus introduces the idea of the now but the not yet kingdom. Such a key idea to remember as we read our Bibles. Um, Imagine for a moment a couple in hospital. And the doctor comes into the waiting room with, with a smile written right across his face. And he approaches the woman. He says, I've got great news for you. You're so, so blessed. You're going to be a mother. You're expecting a child. Imagine then the expectant mother's face kind of moves from a smile to a frown of confusion. She says, okay, I'm expecting a child. Where is the child then? Well, the doctor would need to have a tricky conversation with that expectant mother, wouldn't he? He'd need to explain the basics of pregnancy. Before the joy of a child becomes a reality in her arms, there lie ahead months of difficulty. Uh, There's the nausea, the sore hips, the flushed cheeks, the awkward looks on the tube as people try and work out whether or not to give her their seat. But the point is that expecting a child doesn't lead to the child being in her arms immediately. There is a delay there. So much of a delay, in fact, that there's a long period of knowing you'll definitely have that child without yet having that child. It's called pregnancy. Now, but not yet. And the mother doesn't look impressed at all with this particular doctor. You're telling me that in order to have the blessing of a child, I need to undergo curses now? The doctor thinks for a moment and replies, no, those things may be hard, the nausea, sore hips, awkward glances on the tube and the rest of it, they may be hard, but they're not curses. In fact, they are simply signs and reminders that you are blessed. You simply cannot have the blessing of a child without those things. Every time you feel sick and nauseous, uncomfortable, I'll tell you what, you should rejoice. The doctor's finding his feet now. You should rejoice. It's because you're expecting a child. Even the hard things about pregnancy are blessings. Well, it's a thinly veiled allegory for us this morning. If you've just woken up, I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is the doctor here in Luke chapter 6. We are the pregnant mother as we listen to him. He comes into the room with a smile written right across his face. He says, I've got great news for you. You're blessed. You're not expecting a child. You'll be grateful to hear as a gathering of men this morning. But you do belong to my capital K kingdom. Do you remember what that feels like back in verse 19? You belong to that kingdom. You're blessed. But our initial smile soon gives way to a frown. Because the more we taste of the Christian life, the more we taste, well, it's sometimes quite bitter. And life is hard enough as it is, but it's made harder when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways. It's hard, frankly, being a Christian. I find that my financial generosity out of love for Christ means I have less in my bank account. My hospitality out of love for Christ means I have less in my fridge for myself. 
My care for people's eternities mean I often feel down. Honestly, I sometimes cry about non-Christians who currently won't come into Jesus' kingdom. Even more than that, some people are so offended that I follow the Lord Jesus Christ that they've no longer been so keen to hang out and hook up with me. Some of them laugh at me behind my back. So when Jesus tells me I'm blessed as a Christian because I belong in his perfect kingdom, I'm inclined not to believe him. Just like the mother asked the doctor, well, where's the child then? I feel like asking Jesus, well, where is the kingdom in all its fullness then? Why is following you such hard work? And so we ask what the mother asks. You're telling me that in order to have the blessing of the kingdom, I need to undergo curses now? I need to be poor, hungry, crying, and unpopular? And Jesus thinks for a moment and he replies, no. Those things may be hard, but they are not curses. In fact, they're signs and reminders of exactly who you are. That you belong to the kingdom. You cannot be a kingdom person without experiencing those things. Every time you experience them, you can rejoice. They remind you of your privilege. So every time you resent your poverty because of your generosity, your hunger because of your hospitality and the rest of it, you can be reminded that you're on your way to my kingdom and it's full of paradise. You see, it's worth imagining for a moment that Jesus stopped at verse 19. Imagine we get an eraser out and we lose verses 20 to 26 of our passage. Imagine we only have the healing that he does, not the Beatitudes. What would we expect from the Christian life if we only had those verses and not 20 to 26? Personally speaking, I would expect life to be made easier by becoming a Christian. I would expect to be happy and healthy and full of joy all of the time, just like those healed people in verse 19. But Jesus doesn't let us get away with such a shallow misunderstanding of Christianity. He gives us the Beatitudes, and I rather wish that he hadn't. But they tell us that kingdom blessing now is a great deal of hardship now. That's a good thing, not just because it's true. I mean, imagine a Christianity which had no Beatitudes. What would Christ be to us in that kind of setup? Wouldn't he simply be a cosmic vending machine who gives us blessings when we want them? How would we feel about that kind of a Christ? We would love him with a kind of shallow love with which we love the fridge or the ATM because it gives us stuff we want, but it would be a cold transactional love, not relational at all. I love him because he gives me stuff. What would it make us? Well, I think we would become just Christ consumers, blessing bounty hunters, nothing more than that. We'd only be interested in Christ in as much as we are interested in ourselves. That can't be right. What would it do to our religion? Well, it would be just rampant selfishness wrapped up in a sort of religious garb. What would it do to our witness to the watching world around us? Well, people would look at us, and I think all they would see would be happy, 
healthy, joyful people. They would not see Christ in us. For Christ went to the cross, as we know. That is why we remember him with a cross. Christ knew what it was to be poor and hungry, weeping, excluded, even killed. And comfy Christianity, if we can call it that, has no place for the cross of Christ. And sadly, for comfy Christianity, without the cross, there can be no resurrection. Because resurrection has as a prerequisite death. So it has no future. Finally, what would it do to our souls? It would destroy them. We'd have altered so much Christ, ourselves, our religion, and our witness that we'd no longer have an orthodox Christianity. We'd have no hope, no salvation. It's bankrupt. That is why Jesus doesn't stop at verse 19. We need the Beatitudes. And that's the big frame we need to bear in mind as we come to zoom in on them. Second heading, if you're taking notes, Jesus' kingdom. Are you in or are you out? Worth saying a word or two on how the Beatitudes work. I think they do two main things. Firstly, they offer clarity. And second, they offer comfort. Clarity and comfort. First, clarity. Did you notice the very varied crowd Jesus meets in verse 17? It's a huge mix of people. Firstly, there's the inner, inner ring of the apostles around Jesus, if you imagine it. Then we have the disciples, those who've decided to follow him. And then listening in, I like to imagine, on the outside, like eavesdroppers, uh, the kind of hangers-on. The kind of people who, if we were to offer them help in church on a Sunday, they'd say, no thanks, I'm just looking. Those sorts of people. They're interested but not buying in. So it's a huge mix of people. Question, how can Jesus reveal who is a genuine believer and who is not? After all, they're all doing the same thing, all trying to touch him, all being healed. How can he work out who is genuine and who is not? Answer, he'll use the Beatitudes. Verse 20, he looks at those who at least think they're genuine disciples You think you're the real deal, do you, he says? Well, listen to this. And with everyone listening in, he describes the Christian life in such a black and white, clear-cut, radical way that the non-Christians there will be so offended that they'll move off. And the real Christians will so recognize themselves in what he's saying that they'll be comforted. Do you see, they offer clarity and comfort. Notice the Beatitudes are not instructions on how to get into the kingdom. They're a description of those who are already in the kingdom. I can't underline this enough. A woman cannot make herself pregnant by walking funny and not sleeping well. A Christian cannot make themselves enter God's kingdom by being hungry or poor. That is asceticism. It's not discipleship. It has nothing to do with Christ. The Beatitudes describe kingdom living. They don't provide the way in. So what I propose I do now, very simply, is read out each of the Beatitudes, the blessings and the woes. I'll leave a bit of space for us to think as I read them. And as we listen in, it may be beneficial to us, if we feel brave enough, to ask ourselves the question, does this describe me? Jesus' kingdom, am I in or am I out? So, blessed are we who have given so much away to Christ's work that some people call us poor. 
Blessed are we who've so depleted our bank accounts, pension plans, property portfolios through gospel giving that some colleagues and family who know our situation actually call us poor. Blessed are we because one day we shall be walking on streets paved with gold in the kingdom of God. Blessed are we who are so keen to offer Christ's hospitality that we go hungry ourselves from time to time. Blessed are we who have sometimes given our lunch away to someone more needy or emptied our fridge to guests before eating ourselves. Blessed are we who so cannot wait for God's kingdom that the only way of describing us is hungry. Blessed are we because one day we will eat our fill at God's banquet table in heaven with the finest of meats and the finest of wines. Blessed are we who are so distressed seeing Christian friends stop come to church, apparently fall away from the faith, family members rejecting Christ and the injustice of the world around us, that sometimes it makes us weep. Blessed are we who sometimes cry in private when we think on people so dear to us who just will not, they will not receive Christ. Blessed are we because one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will laugh together with him in his kingdom. Blessed are we when we refuse to stop enthusing about the Lord Jesus Christ so much that people begin to dislike us, even, and it's a strong word, hate us. When we gently defend Christ's exclusive truth claims so that people exclude us for being an outdated bigot. Blessed are we when we discover that some people have been slagging us off behind our backs in private email threads that we don't belong to because we refuse to join in with that underhand deal at work precisely because we're a Christian. Blessed are we when friends genuinely think that our views are harmful or that we are evil when we hold to the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics. Blessed are we because great is our reward in heaven. That's how the world has always treated God's faithful people. Welcome to the illustrious kingdom club, Jesus says. I like to imagine there was a pause at verse 24. But woe, it's a word that means pity or poor you. Woe to you who are rich who've tried to keep a foot in this world as well as in Jesus' kingdom, so that you've been richer towards yourself than God. Woe to you, for there is no comfort awaiting you after the grave. Woe to you who are filled with good things now. Woe to you who find the idea of going hungry in order to feed another person, frankly odd, completely foreign. Woe to you, for on that day when the blessed are eating at the kingdom's banquet table, you will be thrown out. Woe to you, for whom life is a series of easy laughs, who find the sincerity of wholehearted believers a joke, 
who laugh at those for whom Christianity is more than just a simple Sunday hobby. Woe to you, for when Jesus returns, you'll be thrown out into the utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woe to you when everyone loves you to bits. Everyone. When your Christianity is so quiet, understated, and private that people who find Christ offensive speak very well indeed of you. Woe to you when you're more concerned about what people think of you than what they think of Jesus. Woe to you for everyone loved the false prophets to bits, the false prophets. Jesus' kingdom, are you in or are you out? Now, it must be said after all that, it's pretty tough saying those things, let alone hearing them, I'd imagine. It must be said after saying all those things that it is the heart attitude which really matters. That, I think, is what Jesus is getting at. There are plenty of examples of rich Christians in good standing with Christ in the Bible. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, later on in chapter 19 of Luke. That's fine. What marked them out was not them being rich, but they didn't love money. That's the root of all evil. There are plenty of joyful Christians who laugh. I mean, Paul says, count it all joy, my brothers. But he wasn't laughing at sincere Christianity. Plenty of Christians who are generally well-respected. Remember, we read of Timothy that um, everyone speaks well of him. But the non-Christian world didn't approve of him, I take it, more than it approved of Christ. So finally, let's think in more detail on the issue of popularity. Thirdly, Jesus' kingdom, popularity and persecution. I just want to say a word on our culture and a word on us and then a word on our amazing God, if I may. Our culture. Our culture is changing very fast indeed. Ever since the Enlightenment, we've been told that religion is a private thing. It belongs in the private and the personal box, not the public square box. So please don't talk about Jesus at the dinner party or down in Westminster in Parliament. That's what the Enlightenment told us. And then postmodernism piggybacked on the back of Enlightenment thinking and relativized all truth including, maybe particularly, religious truth. So really, please don't speak about the Lord Jesus as if he's truth. And that has changed our culture. Until I think the last few years, our culture has been a traditional non-Western culture with regard to religion. It's basically said, you believe what you want to believe, and that's fine. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Down in Westminster, Parliament hadn't meddled too much in the church's affairs. And we were kind of left to get on with whatever it is the church does. But all that is changing and changing really fast. And we will have felt that, I'm sure, all of us over the last few years. We're moving to much more of a model of non-Western culture, where religion really matters. Our culture is waking up to the fact that religion really changes how people think and particularly how people behave. And therefore, what you believe religiously is my business to know. And in fact, increasingly, it is my business to legislate what you believe. And I think that's scary. The rise of militant Islam has been one of the main catalysts on this front. There's been a slow dawning on our governments. You'll have seen it on the BBC News app day by day. 
that this ISIS problem cannot be fixed quickly using the standard kind of avenues of uh, diplomacy or even war. And it can't be fixed using those avenues because the ISIS problem is at heart a religious problem. It's a spiritual movement, albeit a tragically misguided spiritual movement, but it is spiritual at its heart. Its soldiers are religiously motivated. And our government is just waking up to this fact that the way we must defeat ISIS is from teaching in mosques, not with guns and bombs. And ISIS has been a game changer for us in the UK, I think, in several ways. Firstly, ISIS makes a mockery of the Enlightenment thing, which says religion has to be in private and personal. ISIS says, no, thank you very much. We're going to um, wage a war of terror on the whole world because of our religion. And if that's not a public statement, I don't know what is. They laugh in the face of Enlightenment thinking. And it's causing us to rethink the Enlightenment thing. Ooh, maybe religion should be looked after more carefully. And ISIS, secondly, is making a mockery of postmodernism. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Well, that is scant comfort when what is true for this guy over here means he's going to try and chop my head off. Postmodernism doesn't really work with ISIS. I cannot let him believe his truth. So do you see how ISIS has been the catalyst for real change in our culture? And it's changing our culture so that people recognize religion really matters. Suddenly, questions of religious truth and acceptability are back on the agenda in Westminster. Very quickly, anti-radicalization laws are coming down the track. Huge, huge laws coming very fast. I'm speaking at a school this lunchtime. I had to be vetted by the senior management team as a result of anti-radicalization laws. Never had that before. Our culture is changing fast. There's talk of church youth work being assessed by a sort of Ofsted organization. Churches being assessed and regulated by the secular state. Never seen that before. An inoffensive advert on the Lord's Prayer is banned from the cinemas. Unbelievable. Suddenly people are recognizing the power of religion and mainly the power of religion for ill. Religious terrorism. And so people like us who care so much about a religious figure like the Lord Jesus Christ, who bother to turn up here at 7 a.m. because of our religion, well, people like us make them very nervous indeed. Our government has had to think through what it is we can unite around in Britain if it's not institutional religion. And what they're landing on is the vague notion of British values. They're the new ideal to which we must all conform. And suddenly religion, which dares to disagree with the prevailing culture around it, is a dirty, dirty word. The only Christ who is increasingly acceptable in our country is a Christ who is British, who conforms with these British values. I don't know about you, but it strikes me that the Christ who said these words is really not British at all. And we're living in a nation which is increasingly talking more of tolerance, which is actually intolerant, than freedom of speech, as it's been traditionally conceived. And so our culture has changed massively. It won't have escaped us. And that makes me, it probably makes you very nervous as a Christian. Nervous of the consequences of standing up for our faith. That's a word on our culture, a word on us. 
Every human behavior is driven by two things, fear and desire. Fear and desire. The, our drive for popularity at the cost of discipleship is no different. On the one hand, we're driven by fear. I am scared. Honestly, I am scared. I'm scared of being reprimanded, excluded. If I worked in the secular world, I would be scared of losing my job or being overlooked for promotion. And these are a whole new set of fears. A few years ago, I'd have just said, I'm scared of my friends not liking me so much. But these are real fears that we may be feeling. I fear not feeling like I belong or not feeling like I'm one of the gang. Right now in the UK, I don't think we're afraid of being imprisoned, but the fear of being excluded is very strong indeed. It's the old primal fear of being bullied in the playground. And to that fear, Jesus says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. And he's saying that, Remember the picture of my kingdom I gave back in verse 19, which you so loved. The one where I reversed the curse. He's saying, remember that? Remember the beauty of belonging not to the world, but to my family. Remember that world which is coming? Well, fear losing those things rather than popularity. That's what he's saying. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, well, I'll be ashamed of him in the next. It's a stern reminder. I think verse 26 may well be worth all of us learning off by heart so that we can speak it to ourselves in the moment when the temptation is strongest just to conform and to abandon Christ. But this verse also speaks to us on a church level, not just as individuals. What Jesus is saying is utterly bonkers and radical, I think. He's saying the mark of a successful national and local church is not bums on seats or popularity. It is not that. The mark of a successful local or national church is faithfulness to Christ, whoever bothers to turn up. What he's saying is that the the mark of a successful sermon or a successful church event or a successful bishop's interview on Radio 4 Today program or a successful Christian book is not that everybody liked it. In fact, if everybody does like those things, he says, whoa, what's gone wrong? You cannot be being faithful to me because they crucified me, so what are you teaching? And so if we as Christian men and as the Church of Christ fill our minds with this question, what will people like or what is relevant to our world? If those are the only questions we ask, then we risk being on the slippery path to falsehood the false prophets. Of course, the radical, subversive message of Jesus needs to be kind of um, transliterated, needs to be communicated into our culture. That'll mean some translation issues in terms of culture, of course. But we must never evacuate Christ of his offense because in his offense is the beauty of the gospel. But Jesus also speaks to our desires, not just our fears. We are beguiled by the allure of gaining more of what we like, popularity. We think you could go a long way in this firm. We're beguiled by that, feeling one of the gang, feeling like I belong, laughing with the mates. And so Jesus speaks to that desire. 
And to that he says, verses 22 and 23, he reminds us to rejoice, to delight when we do not feel one of the gang, when we are overlooked for promotion because of our allegiance to Christ. Just as a pregnant mum can be encouraged by the nausea she feels, he says, be encouraged when you're hated. Rejoice when you're overlooked for promotion because of your allegiance to Christ. It reminds you you're a kingdom child. Isn't that wonderful? One argument I often use to persuade myself not to speak openly about Christ is this. I think to myself, if I say or do this now, I may lose my platform for sharing the gospel. Do you ever think that to yourself? The way it goes is, I'm popular now, my friends accept me now, they seem to think I'm okay. But if I say this about Christ now, I may lose that platform. I mustn't do that for the sake of Christ. I need to speak to them of Christ, so I need to keep the platform so they listen. Do do you know that kind of logic? Or or on a work basis, you know, um, I may lose the promotion. I may be sacked if I do this, say this now for the sake of Christ. So I need to stay here to win these people for Christ. I, I need to... So for the sake of Christ, I'm actually not going to speak about him. That's the kind of logic that I often use. But friends, I want to say that we must never so love the platform we have for the proclamation of Christ more than we love Christ himself. In other words, there is no platform for the gospel not worth losing for the gospel. And if we ever find ourselves thinking that there is a platform more valuable than Christ, we've lost the plot. I just wanted to say that. I think it's an important bit of logic we often say to ourselves. As I close, a word on our wonderful God and how he works. It's interesting that the greatest gospel victories occur precisely as the greatest opposition or persecution is felt and experienced. Now, supremely, that is seen in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? This Christmas time, we're reminded that it wasn't just the wise men and the shepherds. It was Herod as well. So the moment when he is worshipped as king lavishly with these gifts and the angel's song, that moment is precisely the moment when a king wants to kill him and every other baby the same age as him. The moment of greatest persecution so often comes at the moment of greatest gospel glory. Of course, supremely, you fast forward the story to the cross, the Easter cross, and we find the same thing. Can you imagine a more abject persecution of Christ than stringing him up on a cross and killing him? The moment of greatest persecution is the moment of the greatest victory. That is why I remember him with his cross. It's a thing to celebrate. And I want to say that same pattern is mirrored in our life as the church, as his people on earth, again and again and again. If you read the book of Acts, I commend that to you. I'm reading it in my quiet times. It's so encouraging for my soul. But again and again, the moments of greatest persecution are the moments when the church grows the most. You read the persecution of Stephen. I read that yesterday morning. And that is the thing in the narrative of Acts which precipitates the gospel going out beyond Jerusalem. Wonderful. And it's been the same in human history all the way through. Nero's Rome, Mao's China, the Cambodia of the Khmer Rouge. 
You turn up the heat on the persecution and you turn up the glory in the church. That's the relationship we often see. And I trust that that holds true for us. So brothers, as I close, the more I've thought about it, the more I think we're in for very stormy times ahead in our nation as Christian men. But I think we should be excited by that. I think there's great blessing in a beatitude way in that. Because with the hard times often come the glorious times. So I think we need to brace ourselves and pray now. I'm going to close by reading verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. Can I lead us in a prayer before we chat and pray in groups? Lord Jesus Christ, we look to you as the author, the perfecter of our faith. You are not asking anything of us which you have not already embraced. You too were poor, hungry, you wept over Jerusalem, and certainly you were excluded, even killed. And Lord, we want to say we adore you for that. We see glory in that because you achieved so much through that. We dare to pray this morning that you would make us courageous, even rejoicing, as we follow in your footsteps. Help us to love you more than we love this world. Help us to embrace the cost as we see the glories of Christ in them. And I pray now as we chat and pray for one another for an encouraging and uplifting time in advance of our Thursdays. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen.